This is a quick disclaimer. Although the wise investor is trying to educate people on personal finance, what we talk about on the show is not actually financial advice for your personal and unique situation. Before trying to do anything with your money, always consult a professional. Hello, everyone, and thank you for listening to this week's episode of What They Did Not Teach You in School, presented by the Wise Investor Team. Making Canadians more financially literate, one post at a time. Hello, 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 and welcome to this week's episode of What They Did Not Teach You in School. Today, our guest is a battle-hardened entrepreneur, educator, and advisor who has led companies in the telecommunication, software, and most recently, the cannabis industry. His name is Brad Poulos, and his experience has focused on running and helping companies with issues issues related to growth, business development, human resources, and business strategy. As an expert in lean startup, he has served as a board member and official mentor at several Ontario incubators. Before we dive into things, I want to say a word from our sponsors. King Street Media. King Street Media is a digital marketing company that helps us uh, create and produce all of our content and advertising. They're a up-and-coming digital uh, agency out of Toronto. If you have any questions on how to market your business or your next campaign, you can find them at King Street Media or kingstreetmedia.ca. I want to ask you, how did you go from, I saw on your LinkedIn, you studied electronics or electronic engineering back in the 90s, and then now you're a business coach. You went from technology into the business world, that science to the art, you know? What was that evolution like? Well... I think you have to go back a little further than college and maybe you'll find the answer there. So one, I was always a curious kid. So I was, you know, that was, that was just part of me, but I always had a burning desire to have my own business, even when I was quite young. And then when I was 14, I discovered an organization called junior achievement. It's a shadow of its former self now, but if you can go back to dare I say it, 1974. Ooh, 1974. It's, you know, it's hard for a lot of our viewers and and listeners to even maybe put that time frame into perspective, but, but, you know, try. So what the, what the junior achievement company program was all about was if you can imagine one night a week, you would go to a center. uh, This is after dinner, not even after school. It's, you know, from like seven till 10 and you'd work on uh, building a company over the course of a school year. So it wasn't tied to the schools, but they used schools for recruiting and they certainly used the school year as kind of to frame it. So you would start a company in September and then close it down and write an annual report uh, by May or June. I did that five times because we had interesting, <laughs> right? So, so I did that five times and I had been president of three companies. All, by the way, all five companies I was in in high school paid dividends to their shareholders. Like you literally, you raised shares at a dollar a share. You'd capitalize your company at something around a hundred or $200. And the idea is you try to give back a buck 20 or a buck 50. And we never failed to actually do that in the five years. So, and three of those, I was the president. Yeah. So, so I had, I'd been bitten by the bug and then, but I was a smug person. And so I, when I went to biz school out of grade 13, I lasted for six weeks And because of this entrepreneurial drive I had, I hated it. I couldn't, I was just going crazy. So I quit. And when was this? Well, what, like around what time was it? 1980. Okay. 79 actually. Okay. So yeah. And so, so much to the chagrin of my dad, who's quite entrepreneurial and another one of the reasons why I think I am the way I am. Um, So I, I went off and I was a freelance jeweler for a while and I sort of farted around and then I went, and then I went back to school. But of course, I, I, the, the entrepreneurial bug sort of never left me. It's just, I, I had a great career at Telesat for 15 years. I actually got to explore some of that later on. I started Canada's very first satellite internet product and I sort of wrote the biz plan. I did write the biz plan and then I ran the business for two years um, prior to leaving that company. So I was, I was always, it was always in the back of my brain, even if I was just working at a job as a job as a tech Mark and I have been discussing it behind the scenes very often. I was on a call uh, earlier with one of like the people from Dragon's Den and they were asked this question too. And it was, do you think that entrepreneurs are, are born or, or bred kind of a thing? And because you hear so many people, even like yours, you started as an early age. It was kind of like a, it called you to it, right? 
but many people they go waiting they go well into their 20s and into their 30s wanting to start a business maybe for the wrong reasons or for the right ones um but they never do and maybe that's because it's not in them as some people would say or uh, maybe they haven't done the right things in order to develop that internally what, what do you believe yeah I think one of the things I've learned how being as old as I am is that almost everything in life is actually a continuum <laughs> as opposed to a binary choice, hmm. right? And, and I think, you know, certainly in the case of, of entrepreneurs, um, all, all of, it, there are some that are just born to it and they, you know, they start their first business at age 10 and just never stop. <laughs> and then there are others, like you say, who discover it quite a bit later. And, you know, the, the key thing to understand about entrepreneurship or being an entrepreneur, it's a post facto term. What does that mean? It's after the fact. It's okay. after you've done it. It's something we call someone after they've done something. <laughs> You're not an entrepreneur, for, entrepreneur before you do it. Right. Okay. So it doesn't matter if you if you're born into it, you know, if you're born born with this sort of bug, or or if you just find some practical thing at age 45 and just kind of force yourself to go through the motions. Once you've done it, and I do think that there should be a little bit of survivorship bias in the sense that, you know, success should have to fit in there somewhere at some point. We all we we embrace failure in the way we teach entrepreneurship now, but we shouldn't celebrate it. So, so you know, at some point, I think you have to have had some some successes. As to like whether someone is born or or made, I really think it it it, it doesn't matter if 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 you don't think that you kind of have that natural ability or drive or desire, but but there's something in you that's that's making you want to explore this theme. I would say absolutely do it. What's very popular amongst our generation over here, they like the glamour of entrepreneurship, you know, the sex appeal of it. And they love throwing CEO in their Instagram bio or their LinkedIn page, right? Uh, so I like the aspect that you said how an element of success is important because you can't just like start a website and maybe incorporate and call yourself a CEO, right? It's kind of like, do you get to call yourself an author while you're writing the book or do you have to have finished it? I guess that's the question, right? <laughs> I love that. That's amazing. Okay. I'm a, a student of um, economics and the stock market and history. I love reading books on history, but I never lived through the 1990s boom and bust of the tech uh, bubble, uh, but you have. Uh, right. Would you be able to tell me your experience a little bit about that and how what it was like during that period of time and what it was like in 1999 when everything kind of uh, blew up? Especially being in the tech business at the time. Yeah. Like my own business. Sure. Yeah. I mean, so it was a, it was a pile of fun. Let me put it that way. Okay. By <laughs> fun the way, fun just, how? Oh, I mean, so. Everyone was I, making money or like, what, yeah, what, what was yeah. it? <laughs> I remember I had a boss at Telesat, really great guy. And I was a sales manager and he was like the vice president of sales. And he said, okay, Brad, look, this is your job. You have to go, now you and your team, you, you have to go downtown to Bay Street and all the other nice tall buildings. He says, because right now people are throwing money outside of the, out of those windows and it's your job to run around and catch as much of it as you possibly can. <laughs> That's how money was flowing in the economy. It was just, it was crazy, especially if you were somehow connected to tech, which mm -hmm. first I was in the telecom business. And then I was even more close to tech because our primary clients were either telcos or um, manufacturers of, of primarily w wireless and other kind of communication technology. So, so we were selling really high tech products to, to all technical customers. Okay. Uh, so yeah, it was a pile of fun while it was while it was going on. Uh, I'll I'll never forget, you know, the the very first I sort of joined my brother's really tiny company in February of '98, and in March of '98, the company prior the prior year had done six hundred thousand dollars in total sales. Yeah. Okay? Didn't make any money. I got us an order from Nortel for four million dollars. Like the second month that I was yeah. We were walking on air. Of course, we messed it up because we were not in a position to do a $4 million order, but that's, you know, you live and learn. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so it was a lot of fun. And then around, yeah, 99 or two. So, so I'll tell you how our revenues went. So sort of sure. went 600K, 4 million, 8 million, 12 million, 17 million, eight and a half million. Wow. Like literally, if you're good at math, you've already figured out it's exactly 50%. <laughs> so 
in the year 2000, the message to our staff was you guys have one job, <laughs> survive. Like we have to get through this. Yeah, we did. It was a couple of couple of lean years, and then things started to pick back up because, as we all know, there was more rational exuberance in the kind of two thousand three to seven eight ish yep. time frame, and we sold out in two thousand five. So that worked out you perfect know, timing, reasonably well. Reasonably yeah, well yeah. Also, uh, the thing that I've noticed that you've probably lived through is that since I since again I graduated or started university in two thousand and nine. Toronto didn't have many incubators, venture capital firms, or at least in the sense that we know today in the technology uh, sphere. And you've probably seen that happen. Now, every, every university has an incubator, every corner or, or township has a accelerator venture space of some sorts. How do you, what has been your experience through that? And you've, you've become like an advisor in this area as well over the last 10 years. What was, what was, what made you want to shift gears and go into that? And uh, how do you think Toronto has positioned themselves over the last 10 years, maybe like catching up to the major cities in the United States? Sure. Uh, yeah, Canada is now, or sorry, um, Ontario, especially Southern Ontario. So we'll, we'll say Toronto and the KW area. It, it's, it's now, it's legit as a startup, you know, as a startup ecosystem. Um, we've got all, all the major incubators are now represented here. And I, I think it's great. I think what, it, what it's helping to do is democratize entrepreneurship a little bit. There's a whole bunch of other things that have led to that as well. And that's one of the reasons why I think, I think there's a bunch of push points. You know, one is it's easier to do nowadays. There's a great Definitely. example. A great example is the very first time I ever worked on a web property that had a payment gateway where we were interacting with the credit card companies, mm -hmm. we wrote it. <laughs> okay like we wrote the code <laughs> all right now, now it's like a checkbox <laughs> exactly right mark okay. and i were just mark and i do some shopify websites and stuff like that and it's a little mark you just literally click a plug-in and there you go you can collect payments right right exactly. <laughs> so so True. all of these tools um things like wordpress shopify paypal um you know, they've all kind of, they've helped to democratize entrepreneurship, I think, to a, to a great degree, because they've, they've taken down a bunch of the barriers, you still have to have a good idea, you still have to be able to execute, you know, all of that kind of stuff. Fair. And uh, whenever I talk to some of uh, my f colleagues and friends, they are complaining about how it's so difficult to raise money in Canada. Um, well, comparatively to California or like some other places around the world. Um, have you seen that? How do people, like if someone's looking to raise money for their startup, what, what would be your advice to them? Uh, look everywhere. So not even just in the U.S. as well as Canada, but absolutely Europe and, and um, even the Far East. And, so, and, and why do you think it's more difficult to raise money in Toronto or in Canada in general? Because or Canadians, is it? Or is it? Yes, it is. It's. I think it absolutely is. Because Canadians are risk averse. I think as as generally as people compared to Americans, hmm. um, we we have venture funds here. We have angels. It's not like they don't exist, but they just. It's just the ecosystem is so much more well developed in the United States and even in like the UK. So um, while I know lots of companies that have raised money in Canada. Most of the companies I've ever been involved with that have had to raise money have not raised it exclusively in Canada. Mm. At least some of it has come from outside. Right. Fair. When you're looking to invest in or advise or, you know, get involved in a startup because you do uh, coaching as well for entrepreneurs, what are kind of your, the things that you're looking out for? Is it the idea? Is it the team? Is it the, their revenue or their progress to date? What, what are some of the checklists that you are, that you find most important before you decide whether you're going to work with them or not? Okay. And, and there, there'd be, you know, I'd have to divide that into two groups because there's lots of young sort of entrepreneurs that I just mentor as a, you know, as a favor to them. And then there's companies that I work with where, you know, they pay me for my advice and all that sort of stuff. So, Fair. so, so for the first group, it's really mostly around coachability, their idea, their chosen market, all of that may not be that important because we may pivot away from that. Mm -hmm. But if somebody's not coachable, I'm not really that interested in working with them. That's not as true with clients because they're paying, but it's sort of true with clients, right? Yeah. I mean, certainly much better to work with somebody who's coachable. 
Right, right. Um, as so, so for the first group, you know, I'm not quite as discerning. If you've got a lot of passion and you seem coachable and you see, you're just a good kid, I'm I'll probably give you at least some of my time, and then we'll see where it goes. Fair. Uh, for the other group, it I have to be able to add value. Like I won't take on clients where I'm not a hundred percent sure that I can actually help. Okay. So I feel like that's a universal good thing for people in the service industry, because sometimes they see the money and they'll take the client on anyway, but that's penny wise and pound foolish mm -hmm, for sure. I learned a long time ago to treasure the long-term value of clients and relationships and all of that sort of stuff. And even if that means in the short run, having to, you know, not, not optimize something for your own monetary gain, it's probably best to do in the long run. <laughs> yeah. So I've learned that the hard way as well. <laughs> Mark knows some stories on that for sure. So if you were to uh, build the archetype of a perfect founder, um, what are some of the skill sets that would say this person's more likely to succeed than someone who's not? Sure. We, so first of all, we actually focus more on teams. Okay. So How founding so? teams. Yeah. Um, no, cause nobody has it all right. None of us. So there's actually a cool, a cool little, you know, model that was put together by one of my, my colleagues. And, you know, this is maybe a good segue into the, the, you know, the kind of straddling, we're having one foot in each of the kind of practitioner versus academic camps, uh, entrepreneurship. Well, there's lots of, you know, there's lots of people studying it and, and, and such. It's not really an academic field in the sense that if you're teaching it, you're not teaching a lot of theory. You're showing how people, how to do stuff. Hmm. Right. It's very much a lab, uh, you know, kind of approach to things. That's good. So, yeah, I mean, I think it's highly appropriate. I wouldn't want to I wouldn't want to be teaching doctors and nurses and find out that they're just learning theory. Mm -hmm. I want them to actually touch stuff. And so if you're in the entrepreneurship program at Ryerson, we're going to make you start something. It may be a company. It may be some social enterprise, but you're, there's no way you're getting through four years and not starting at least one thing. Most people will have started two or three different things in that in that you know, the three years that you're in our major that's really good because typically you know undergrads um uh, or any kind of university undergrad particularly it's not very applied right and obviously this this i think if entrepreneurship is taught well it's absolutely applied there's no question and that's the other thing is i'm not unique so in our department everybody who's an entrepreneurship specialist is actually an ex-CEO like with okay with one exception who's an ex-VC lawyer person okay but with okay. lots of lots and lots of experience so what's so what's the uh, program's approach like how do you train and build the best entrepreneurs so the first thing is I think you have to decide on what are the best practices today so okay. we've we've fixed on a handful of things some stuff around mindset you know uh, grit that kind of stuff then some process stuff. So uh, we're big believers, of course, in lean startup. I mean, how could you not be today? Uh, and design thinking as a as a front end tool. So design. Let's let's, let's let's dive into that a little bit. Okay. So uh, mindset stuff. What do you mean by that grit? And how do you teach that? Because I, I meet a lot of people and it's not easy to change their mindset. That's something that's ingrained in someone for 20 years before they get to you in university. So how do you uh, implement that into some older humans? You start with know thyself. So where we start in this program, actually, when we get into the deep core of it, where so there's the first year, which is a, a fair bit of theory. Year three and four are, are, are heavily applied. That's one of the core courses that I teach the very first thing we make you do is look deep inside. So what is so, that like doing Myers-Briggs on yourself or like? Myers-Briggs would be would be along the theme, but it's not the kind of thing I expect them to do. So more like big five, mm -hmm. which a lot more theory, a lot more science around big five than there is. Myers-Briggs has been, don't know why everybody loves Myers-Briggs. You can never fail it. <laughs> there's mm -hmm. no bad, there's no bad profiles, right? So. Um, whereas there's bad profiles on the big five. Like I could say, yeah, you, you're, you're in trouble. Like you, with that personality, you could have some issues, right? So, and, and people are so, people are so used to the Myers-Briggs, the 16 personalities or whatever, the big five, is that like the Hexaco, Hexaco? Uh, uh, so that's the ocean model. So okay. where we look at openness, conscientiousness, uh, erotic, uh, eroticism. 
Yeah. <laughs> Sorry about that. Um, <laughs> maybe that's important. Yeah, maybe <laughs> in another course, it might be more important. Uh, agreeableness and neuroticism and mm -hmm. uh, extroversion. So, and, and it's an infinite, it's an infinite scale in the sense that if you can imagine you've got a center point and then you've got five axes with each of those those um, elements on them, well, every one of us would have like a unique pattern, right? Every one of us is a, a unique combination of those five, th those five um, elements, whereas MBTI pushes us into one of 16 kind of arbitrary uh, yeah, groupings. Yeah. So anyway, we, we make you learn a lot about yourself, do a fair bit of reflection on your skills, your abilities, your desires, all of that and then make a plan for the next year. And then we, we hold them to that plan. I that's, like that. That's really important. That's, that's where we start. Okay. And then you said uh, process and lean and the lean startup. Would you be able to describe that for some of the people that have never read the book or heard of it? Sure. So, so actually, can we start with design thinking? Yeah, let's do it. So that one's way, new to me. I've never heard that term before. Okay. The, the way I like to teach entrepreneurship at a high level is that we have kind of two big tool sets. Okay. We have lots of individual tools, but two big tool sets, two boxes, if you will, design mm -hmm. thinking and lean startup, lean agile. Okay. okay. So design thinking is for solving really big problems, not necessarily in a corporate sense. It could be governments use design thinking processes all the time to attack really big problems. And okay. what it is, is it's a, it's a, it's a, uh, it's a sort of a sequential approach of first, what we call divergent thinking. So creating lots and lots of choices, going out and figuring out what does the world look like? What, what I think I know about a problem, but let me go and actually find out about the problem. Hmm. So I can speak like an expert about that problem, the people that have it maybe find some commonalities between them, all that sort of stuff. And then once we've done a good enough job of the divergent thinking, then using convergent thinking, where in the first instance, we're going to focus super tightly on a particular piece of the problem. The example I always like to use is homelessness. Okay, homelessness is not one problem that you can just solve. It's a very multi-leveled uh, right. issue. Right. So you'd have to pull on one thread and go, I'm, today I'm fixing this one. <laughs> so, and then you do a second diverge converge around the solution because the first part you did the problem and then you figure out the solution. So at the end of a diet of a, of a design thinking exercise, you have problem solution fit, but that that's not a company. That's not a product. Mm -hmm. It's only, you figured out a problem and you kind of know something about the people that have it. And you've figured out like the rough idea of a solution. Interesting. Lean startup then allows you to take a problem solution fit and go and create product market fit. So we're going to take the solution, morph it into a product, do all of the things it takes to take a solution and make it a product, a box, a label, manuals, customer service, you know, all the things that, that you have to add on to it. Um, Very interesting. And, and yeah, and the way you do lean startup, as opposed to the old kind of waterfall technique, actually, can I, I'll tell a story real quickly. About please, Teletrack. please, back in, please. Back yeah. in 1995. Okay. I told you already, I, I, um, I, I was given the opportunity to write the business plan for direct PC in Canada by the president of Telesat. He asked me to do this. So, um, I wrote, I took about three, four months, uh, part of my time, part of some other people's time. We wrote this business plan. We presented it in May of 1995 to the board, same board as Bell Canada, because they owned us and they approved it right on the spot, 2 million bucks. Okay. A million dollars to give to Hughes network systems for a license and bunch of stuff. And then another million for working capital and equipment. Okay. And I proved it on the spot. As I was walking out the door, um, Larry Boisvert, the president, says, hey, Brad, I got good news for you. What's that, Larry? Starting Monday, guess what your new job is? He says, this time we're going to make the guy who wrote the plan do the plan. Interesting. So, so I did. But here's my point. I got two million bucks. And do you know how many customers I talked to? Zero? Zero. Maybe? <laughs> oh, really? Not a okay. one. Not a one. So how now, did you know if the plan was going to work? How could I know? Right. No, we had a good idea. Of course, we had market forecasts put together by me and the marketing people and whatever, but it's just like, like this. Mm -hmm. We never actually talked to one. <laughs> Nowadays, we actually tell people, look, 
before you build the product, go sell it. So lean startup is really about doing everything in a small incremental fashion, testing every single hypothesis you have before you spend the 2 million bucks. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so. Okay, cool. I like that. If someone wants to learn about more about design thinking, do you have a, a book recommendation? Sure. Yeah, I mean, there's like so that. many resources available. You can obviously look on YouTube for all kinds of, uh, you could probably watch design jams, that sort of stuff. There's a couple of books though that we've used over the years that, that would be helpful. If you're working on something that's complicated, the book is called Disciplined Entrepreneurship. Okay. Um, and if it's more of a simple startup, then look at um, Designing for Growth. Really, both books are very, very approachable. Okay. They're, they're what I call a trade book. They're not a textbook style book. They're a, they're like a regular biz book. Good. And uh, and for lean startup, there's the lean startup, which I have over here in my yeah in my in my bookshelf. But is there another uh, one that you may uh, recommend? Yeah, there's a couple of others. So you could uh, you start with the lean startup. Eric Reese, you know, he kind of he deserves to get credit for for this. And then his mentor is a guy named Steve Blank. And he wrote a book called The Startup Owner's Manual and The Four Steps to the Epiphany. Both of those are great if you want to do some more, some additional reading. Perfect. Love it. Um, okay, let's uh, let's switch gears here. Oh, actually, I wanted to go back and say uh, when you were talking about teams and what makes a great team, uh, uh, you want to maybe dive point. a little bit on that? Yeah, I didn't finish that point. Yeah. Yeah. So I think it's really important that a founder of a company quickly expand beyond themselves. And no, no one of us has all of the different kind of skills, capabilities, bits of knowledge that you're going to need to succeed. And there's also some other reasons too. It's a, it's a lot less lonely when you're doing things together as a team in a startup world. So the model that we use is actually called the talent triangle. And there's sort of three pieces that we, we say that people should have in their founding team. The first is uh, general business knowledge, business wisdom, biz acumen, that kind of thing. That's, you know, your CEO position. This is the person who just doesn't matter what the industry or the situation, they, they're, they're biz wise and they're probably going to make good decisions. Typically, if you're going to have anybody that's a bit older on the team, that's probably the one to do because you can't have wisdom without time in general. Then the other two corners are the operations side and the domain, what we call domain knowledge, which is really marketing and sales. So somebody who, if you're, if you're in a tech startup, let's say you're writing an app, then the, the operations person, that's the person who's responsible for delivering an app to the app store. They have to know how to do that stuff. And then the domain knowledge is really important because I like to say every industry has its own dirty little secrets. Okay. And they may not be so secret, but sometimes they're not super well-known, but they're well-known to the people in the industry. You know, that that's how this industry works. So like a good example is how do you get a store, a product on a, on a retail shelf? Ah, uh, yes. Nowhere near as simple as people think. <laughs> Very true. Yes. So, we've gone down that road and wow, is there a lot to know? So having somebody who's in that game and already has those relationships and has done this before can be super helpful. Interesting. And, and, and how do you, uh, cause I've heard from, uh, the book, how to win friends and influence people, you know, that sales is a really important skill set to have. Um, and usually the CEO is the best salesperson for the company. So is that an aspect that one of those three, uh, uh, people should have? Absolutely. So both, I would argue both the CEO and the domain knowledge person have to have some sales capability. Uh, uh, by the way, I'm not saying that you always have to have three people. I, I would definitely like to see a minimum of two people and don't argue with me that anybody occupies all three of the corners of the talent triangle. Like nobody has all of those. So, um, but you could do it with two, cer certainly it's, it's quite possible. But the other, the other thing about lean startup, the quote, quote, bad news for some people, perhaps is that if you're the founder, I got bad news for you. You have to sell. And yeah. the, the reason, the reason is because of in the lean startup process, what you're constantly doing is testing hypotheses and pivoting. Mm -hmm. And so the problem is, let's say that you just hate sales and you got money. Okay. But you hate sales. 
So what do you do? You throw money at it. You hire yourself a salesperson, even though you're, you're just in startup mode. What happens? Salesperson goes out. Well, they, they find out stuff that you don't want to hear. Well, they don't tell you. So you didn't hear. You paid mm. them and you didn't get the value. But then the second thing is, if you're the one hearing it as the founder and you're with the customer, you can go down that road. You can pivot on the spot. It's your company. You, a salesperson doesn't have that ability to do that. Hmm. So the bad news is that at the beginning, at least, founders have to be doing the, the customer discovery, the selling. Interesting. I, I, yeah, I've seen that a lot. A, a lot. One of the problems that I see is that a lot of founders, they try to outsource selling too early. Um, and maybe they're not even the best. They have to be the best salespeople for the first, you yeah. know, three to five years, maybe. Right. Yeah. Um, the other, the other thing I should, cause you just, you just hit on this point. So uh, think about what is a startup. Okay. A startup is not a small version of a big company, right? A startup doesn't have a VP of HR necessarily, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. They don't have all of this structure and stuff. What a startup is, is an entity usually a private company, but it could be like inside a big company as well. But you know, it's usually its own thing that's in search of a business model. And only when you get to that like repeatable business model, should you outsource virtually anything? Because if you, why would you outsource something that you haven't optimized yet? Right. So the whole idea of a startup is, is not like, is, is should we keep going in this way or should we do some different stuff today? And only when all those questions have been answered, are you kind of past startup mode? And then you start to scale it. Okay. Let's, let's, uh, let's chat about that. So, you know, we found product market fit. You've developed your product, uh, a couple processes and systems. What are some things that you would give tips about uh, scaling? I used to always get to that chapter in the book where it's like scaling is so difficult. And in my early days, I was like, oh, what a problem to have. Like you're growing too quickly, you know, like, woe is me. But we've run into growing pains as a company and trying to get to that next level and building processes that are scalable. And that's actually very difficult to do. Um, what are, what's your advice to someone that's having that kind of like ceiling plateauing problem and maybe some theory or wisdom that you can impart to, to scale a company? So I think I'm, I'm anticipating, or I'm, I'm sorry, I'm uh, <clears throat> interpreting your question as that it's not a problem getting the sales. It's the challenge of, of executing. That's Usually. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Sure. So this is when the team actually becomes even more important, I would argue. And the other thing is it's when you, I, and I, I, I can tell you, I've lived this at least three times when you have to make tough decisions about changing the people. Hmm. Because How so? people at the beginning are not necessarily the right people at the next level. So, and that's a, that's a tough thing to do as a founder, especially if you develop that, right? Like, especially if they're also a shareholder, hmm. it can be very tough, but so what does one do? You have to do, you'd have to do it. You have hmm. to bite the bullet and take the tough decisions. If you want to scale, you have to get the, in, you know, in the cases I'm thinking about problems out of the way and then get the people in the job that can actually execute on it. And quite often those people are less entrepreneurial. Those are the mm. kind of people, they're not, they're not quitting their $120,000 a year job as a controller somewhere to come to your little startup, but they'll come to your thing that was a startup not long ago. So um, quite often, you know, very, very, very different people. Interesting. Oh, and by the way, you as the founder might be one of those people that have to I go. was just, I was just about to ask that question, Brad. Um, because you hear often that there's the founder and there's a certain skill set for being a founder, a starter, a little bit scrappy, grit, you know, willing to maybe go against the grain, sales oriented, right? But um, as your company starts to scale, maybe you need a little bit more of a bureaucratic leader or CEO. Do you think that it's the usual that uh, startup founders become real small businesses to larger enterprise leaders and uh, what kind of problems do you see and have you seen in your experience in that that transition and if so how do see founders kind of like stomach that and take a step back yeah so we should probably divide the world into two groups of companies 
so let's remember that most most companies that get started and remain in business and are successful would fall into the category that I call the attractive small firm. Okay. They're not going to be a big, huge company, right? Then you have the then you have the unicorns or the gazelles or that, that sort of thing. So if we divide it into the two camps, I think almost okay. always the founder can make the jump into that first group. Okay. And you know they, they they likely have the skills or can learn the few things that they're learn or hire around their couple of deficiencies. Okay. But, you know if you're working with a company that's you know in the ten, twenty, thirty million dollar range, they can probably grow to that. Okay. Um. But but then what, being, what makes you say probably because there's a chance that they can't due to the founder? Oh, just just the balance of probabilities. I'm just thinking about across the spectrum of companies and people that I've known over the years, you know, most have had that skill set, the ability okay. to run. If they had the ability to start a company and get it up and running and get it to five million, they can probably run it at 10 or 20. That's okay. That's my okay. point. Okay. And and I would put myself into that category. But I've never run a billion dollar company. I'm not sure that I would have the skill set. I know I don't have the desire. Um, <laughs> so um, I just don't want to work that hard anymore. Yeah, right? yeah. So um, I, I think that the chances of a founder making it, like, like let's take Mark Zuckerberg or Jack Dorsey or um, uh, Elon Musk. Jeff Bezos. Yeah. So those guys are exceptional individuals. And, you know, and then the other thing that I think that could easily be said is that they're not necessarily the best person to run that company. And I would absolutely count Zuckerberg and Dorsey in that category, not so much the other two, but, um, but I have no doubt in my mind that if they had proper governance that those companies would be better run. Hmm. So those two CEOs have too much power. Understand. What made you want to, and I know you're still a mentor and an advisor and all of that, but what made you make that transition? What happened in your life? Maybe it was the next stage to uh, getting into teaching and more of the imparting your wisdom rather than startups and whatnot. Yeah. Okay. So the way I got into teaching is, is kind of interesting. Um, I, the, I sold my company in 2005, so I left in 2007. Uh, I had been president of the company that bought us for a couple of years, and it was a publicly traded company. I actually didn't enjoy it as much, although I, I had kind of always dreamed of, you know, being a publicly traded company president, CEO. Uh, I didn't actually like it. So. What made you What made you not like it? Was there something in particular? Well, it's actually, it, you know, back to know thyself, right? So one thing I figured out, I've only figured it out. So we had thousands and thousands of shareholders, many of which wanted to call me all the time and tell me how to run the company. <laughs> Okay. And I didn't want to listen to them. And let's face it. I knew a hell of a lot more about how to run this company than right. they do, but I have to, especially because of the CEO who preceded me, I kind of had to entertain a lot of this because they had been trained to this. Ultimately I hired investor relations people and pushed that off to them. Mm -hmm. But, but what it made me do is reflect back previously. I had been in a business where I was the president and I had two business partners who were pretty silent. One of them kind of worked in the business. The other one didn't at all. And, and I, I remember one time they were giving me heck about something. And I said, you know, guys, look, from now on, this is how it's going to go. All right. Every year, we're going to make one decision. And then we're going to make that decision for a year. And then that's it. And that's the only decision you guys get to make. And that is, is Brad still in charge? <laughs> so I realized I didn't want their input. Hmm. I didn't want their input. I didn't want input from thousands of shareholders. And I'm not saying this is a strength of Brad. Okay. Not at all. <laughs> but I bet but, you that kind of, uh, well, I don't know, but maybe that kind of, maybe you want to call it stubbornness or independent thinking got you to where you were in that position in the first place. Per perhaps, I guess it, it had something to do with it. Yeah. But, but anyway, so I, yeah. I realized I really don't want to, I don't really want to have to answer to people. <laughs> so, so I took one of our little businesses we had spun off that was a, like an integrator of the company my brother and I sold that I still owned part of. And I worked in it for a while, but it was 2007. And this was just when the financial yeah. crisis hit. So capital expenditures just dried up and, and there was really not much business there. So I'm like sitting around looking for something to do. So I just approached Humber and Ryerson about teaching. And so I started to fill some of my time doing teaching because I always, I always, 
I had had a job for a year as a trainer when I was back in my corporate world. I liked it. And I, I kind of enjoy part imparting knowledge again, maybe not a strength, but, uh, I quite enjoy it. So, okay, cool. And, uh, what, what gets you out of bed in the morning now? Oh, learning actually. I, yeah, I, so I don't even read fiction. Um, I, I, but I, I love learning. I'll never stop learning. I just like love just, yeah, picking up new skills. So when COVID first hit, I, I started a Shopify store slash Facebook page, like the whole, the whole ecosystem, right? Instagram, everything yep. just to prove I could get, like I could do it and get orders and make it all work. <laughs> and then I shut it down. Right. Cause I didn't want to actually do it, but yeah, yeah. But, but also so I could, so I could advise our students, right. Cause so many of them end up doing <clears throat> electronic properties of some kind. I felt I had to have a little more hands-on experience with that. So I taught myself that. Okay, cool. Um, I saw on your website a quote that was uh, pretty interesting to me as like a little bit of a finance nerd. Okay. Uh, it said, said finance without strategy is just numbers, but strategy without finance is just dreaming. What does that mean exactly? It wasn't well, your quote, but I, I read it and something that yeah. was on your website though. So the, the, well, finance without strategy is just numbers. Okay. It's just a bunch of numbers on a pay on a piece of paper. If there's no strategy around it, then what the heck is it? Right. Mm -hmm. how, what, how would I do anything with it? Cause the strategy is, you know, involves decisions that we're, we've either made or we're going to make. So if there's no strategy, I don't know how, I don't know where the finances would come from, but I think the second part of that quote is the more powerful one. Right. So let's understand that. So what this is really about is, is one of my favorite sayings. I used to use it when I was in a, 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 a finance teacher for a couple of years. If it doesn't jingle, it doesn't count. Okay. <laughs> it's all about the cash, man. All right. And so you can have all the plans in the world, but if you can't get the cash to go and execute those plans, I guess they don't matter how much, do they? Mark, Mark, that's going to be my absolute favorite uh, quote of this entire podcast. You know that. Right? Uh, there are a few really good ones so far. I'm taking notes, but uh, that was a great one for sure. I have to give credit to my finance prof back from the, the old Ivy days because I stole it from him. His name's James Hatch and <laughs> he, uh, he must have used it many times during our course. He's, Guys, come on. If it doesn't jingle, it doesn't count. So <laughs> which really means it's all about the cash. And now his point was really more about comparing accounting to finance and the fact that profit isn't cash. <laughs> cash is cash. Profit is is an accounting number. Hmm. Might hopefully end up being cash at some point, but not necessarily. Interesting. Okay. Um, so if you don't mind, I'm going to ask you, maybe this is a little deep question, but it could, I would love for it to come with a, with a story if you have one, but um, what's a time that uh, you thought that you were going to call it quits in your, in your career or your journey as an entrepreneur? And, and how did you overcome that? Because there's a lot of times I've thought about, oh, geez, this is really tough. And that's an entrepreneurial maxim, you know, like they yeah. think about that always, but the successful ones keep going. Even during the tough times, you went through 99, 08, like I'm sure you've had some other, like in the early nineties, how did you overcome that and get through? I have to be honest. It's mostly fear. <laughs> fear of what? Oh, fear of failure, fear of, fear of, of everything that that would have brought. So both the financial hit, so I'm thinking, I, so when you, when, when you started to explain your question, I was thinking back to a kind of a particular time, you know, post, post the, the tech meltdown. And I don't know why, but it was always in the summer, next day's payroll. And I'm not actually sure where the money's coming from. It's like the next day. And I'm lying there asleep, like w wondering where that money's coming from. And, and we always found it, we scrambled, we, you know, we just did whatever we had to do to get the money in to make payroll the handful of times that that actually came up. But I can absolutely tell you it was, I was pretty much motivated by motivated by fear, you know, fear of letting my, my employees down, fear of them getting mad at me, fear of fear of how I would look all of the above. That is a that is a driver. That's for sure. Um, okay, thanks for sharing that. I appreciate it. Yeah. Um, uh, how, how do you split your time as a mentor and a teacher uh, of entrepreneurship and entrepreneurs between like younger founders and older founders? Is it 50-50 split, 80-20? No, it's much more younger <clears throat> founders, I guess, because of deal flow, because I, 
I, I tend to run into them more through okay. the, through the zones at Ryerson, you do get exposed to some older entrepreneurs, mm-hmm. um, but not that many, frankly. So the older entrepreneurs that I work with tend to be clients that are actually paying me and they found me through my website or they got referred or something like that. And I run them through very similar processes, processes than, that I would if you were one of my students or, or somebody I'm mentoring in, at one of the zones. It really does come down to lean startup approach to, to starting a business. So tell me everything you think you know. Write it down. We're going to give you a special one-page sort of model called the Lean Canvas to put it on. But it doesn't have to be. It could just be on a piece of foolscap. But tell me everything you think you know, and then let's talk about that. And then let's talk about how you're going to go. And next week, you're going to tell me how these things, you actually know them now. Before you thought them, now you know them. (laughs) And these things that you thought you knew, you actually found out you were wrong, (laughs) right? Because you went and you tested all your hypotheses around different things. A lot of it around, obviously, around customers and solutions, but also hey, you've got some cost assumptions. You think you can make your widget for X dollars. Until you can prove that, you don't know if you have a biz model that you can actually execute on. Right, exactly. You think you can sell it through a particular sales channel. Well, have you talked to them? <laughs> you know, so that sort of stuff. Interesting, okay. And uh, the reason why I ask is, it's probably even a problem for older entrepreneurs as well, is that uh, I interview young entrepreneurs on uh, the podcast all the time. And... Um, recently particularly uh the idea of uh, founder mental mental health or like um founder depression or anxiety and loneliness but just like even in the general scheme of humanity and society mental illness has been a bigger topic um but for, with entrepreneurs it's usually lonely they're they're making big decisions they have people that were that rely on them and that's maybe come up as a barrier to progression for your clients or your, the people that you mentor has that been something that you've been noticing over the last like three to five years, or maybe you're not a psychologist or deal with this, but it definitely comes up in your life. And how do you, how have you been, what have you noticed recently about that? And maybe how are some solutions that people can get past it? Sure. Well, I, I think, I think I have to pick up on the point you mentioned, which is that I think societally we're more aware of these things. And so that does obviously translate into the entrepreneurship world. So we are more aware of all of that kind of stuff. Um, but, but it's tough. It's hard. And like what I tell people, I, I do lean startup seminars from time to time. And I, at the beginning, I say, you know, guys, there's not a single thing I'm going to tell you to do today that's actually that hard. But doing this is hard. <laughs> okay? Like doing it all is hard. Yeah. Getting up every day. And, and hearing no again and again and again. And there's no secret, really. I think you've just got to be aware of it going in helps a lot, like what you're buying into. And then certain people just aren't made, aren't, aren't made to be entrepreneurs. And that's okay. I mean, what would, what would the world be like if everybody wanted to be an entrepreneur? I think it'd be chaos. <laughs> so. Fair, fair, fair. Yeah, because it, it is tough to be an entrepreneur. And I, I saw a seminar one time about how it, the title of the seminar was why it's illogical to be an entrepreneur. And he talked about like burnout and working too much and a light, a work-life balance. What is that? And like the effects on your personal finances and the risks. And at the end of it, he was like, don't be an entrepreneur. <laughs> yeah. But he was an entrepreneur and he was like, but I'm still an entrepreneur. Yeah. And he's like, it's because I love it and it feeds me, you know, yeah. like his, it feeds his soul, not necessarily like in any other way. Right. So you have to be a little crazy in a sense, or be able to handle that, that mental toughness or whatever you want to call it in order to get through the hard times. Yeah. There's a lot of people that can't deal with the idea of their income being the plug figure in the, in the, in the equation. Right. <laughs> um, but that's very much the case in the early going of, of being an entrepreneur. And the other thing is too, if you're a bit older, you gotta be better have your family behind you, yeah. your partner and your children better be on board too, or it'll be very difficult for you to weather the storm of the first few years until things are maybe back to the way they were when you had a job. Yeah. Fair. Fair. Um, uh, by the way, we have five more minutes here, but would you okay. be comfortable going 10 minutes at past? Oh, I, don't, to- I, I got nothing. I don't, I don't think I have anything else today. We can just go until we're done. Perfect. Yeah. Cause I got like uh, five more questions that I would yeah. love no, to I'm, ask you I'm and fine. I don't want to rush them. Okay, yeah. great. Perfect. 
So yeah, on that topic of the sacrifices necessary to get into entrepreneurship, what um, I want to ask you, you don't have to tell me like specifics and stuff, but how did becoming an entrepreneur affect your personal finances? And um, <laughs> yeah, and uh, tell me maybe a little bit about how you overcame that because something that we see uh, with some of our friends and stuff is they want to be an entrepreneur and they start out and maybe they didn't have enough money saved up or whatever. And it's actually that personal lifestyle burn rate that, yeah. that fails them out or pushes them out of entrepreneurship when they were onto something good. And in even more so is for engineering grads, like out of Waterloo or something, they're turning down hundred K jobs or more maybe yeah. uh, to become an entrepreneur. So I always say it's easier to become an entrepreneur if you're like a business or like marketing grad or social, social science grad, because you're turning down a 50 K job to like become an entrepreneur versus yeah. like an engineer or software or comp side person who's turning down six figure jobs to go into entrepreneurship. Right. So uh, yeah, if you can just maybe tell a little bit about your story and some kind of advice that maybe people can take when managing their expectations on income, because people see the Lambos and stuff on Instagram or Facebook and YouTube, but that is not the reality necessarily. A hundred percent of those Lambos are rented. <laughs> so, so in my, my case, I had a good job. Um, I was working for Telesat. I was making, you know, well over six figures in the late nineties. And, um, I had an opportunity to join a little com company that my brother had started a couple of years before, but was kind of idle, wasn't really doing much. And so that's what I did. And did you the take next, a pay cut to join there? The next year I made $55,000. Ooh, ooh. <laughs> okay? okay. The year after that, I think I made, I don't remember the exact number. It wasn't over a hundred. Mm -hmm. And then in the third year, I was now clocking higher than what I was making at my job. And even so that that's not the norm. Even that's that not the norm. Three-year turnaround. That's pretty good. That was pretty good. Yeah. That, that wasn't bad at all. Um, and my net, even though we took big salary cuts when things got tough, I never really went below, at least by much, maybe five or $10,000, what I would have been making in my old job. So I always felt pretty, pretty good about that. But I also, I also felt pretty lucky. Now, rising tide raises all boats. I jumped into the wireless industry. One of the reasons I joined my brother's company is because that was right after the digital licenses had been let to ClearNet, Microcell, Bell, Telus, Rogers, for the, 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 the Gen 2 cell phones. And I, see. I, I, knew, I knew that was going to take off. So, you know, we rode a wave. Uh, yeah, I, have, I hear that the 90s were great. And uh, to, to jump onto that, though, is what, what do you see from a leadership team that can get through these recessions and these major pivots and like how the world operates and then come out the other end successful? Because the, the, uh, the late 90s and 2008 and then now what we're seeing right now are destroying companies. What type of person is the, the person yeah. that can get through that? I think, I think your good leaders are going to get through those tough times. And it's the fact that people will rise to the top during, during like really great times that maybe didn't deserve to and don't actually have that skill set. But, but the cream will rise to the top in the tough times. You know, the, the really good people and, and then the ones that aren't cutting it are going to, it's, it's mm. going to show. So it's the same there's no difference between good and bad times in terms of what makes a good leader, right? A good leader has a handful of characteristics. One, um, it's not all about them. <laughs> okay. You know, it's like, it's the, the opposite of our friendly president south of the border, right? <laughs> Who thinks that everything that happens in the United States that's good is because of him, you know, so a lot of humility, that sort of stuff leads by example, not afraid to roll up the sleeves, get their get their hands dirty, you know, all of that kind of stuff, um, uh, works their butt off. Cause you got to It's all, I guess part of the example you have to set is mm -hmm. that in those tough times, man, like we kind of work harder. It's just, it's just how it is. I'm sorry. Um, even though I know we were working pretty hard when it was good because we were collecting all these orders and stuff, but yeah, we probably even have to work a bit harder now. Um, and then I think people that are a team player are going to be much more important during those tough times. Hmm. So, uh, because we're probably going to have to make more personal sacrifices, that sort of stuff. I don't have to ask as much of people in the good times. Right. I've got to ask more of you in the bad times. So here's like a great story. 
Yeah, um, please go ahead. In uh, roughly, I don't know, 2001 or two, things were kind of tough, and it was May. And my brother and I had, uh, we had laid some people off already, and we were looking at, we, we got to cut costs more. And so what we came up with this plan that we presented to the employees, and the plan was this. The owners are taking a, I think we took 25% pay cut. The managers took 15% and the people took 10. So we're asking all of you guys, if you will take these pay cuts and we're taking the biggest, mm -hmm. um, we won't lay anybody else on. Like we'll keep everybody, but we need a hundred percent agreement from the employee body or we can't do this. So we need every one of you and you can all do it anonymously, of course, but we need every one of you to sign a piece of paper that you agree to this. So they did, and this was in May. And by Christmas, we were doing much better. We gave them back every penny that they had given up. So it wasn't a pay cut, it was a pay deferral. Mm -hmm. they, they never gave up anything. By December, they had gotten every dollar they had ever given up, and we kicked it by 10%. So they made 10% on the loan over the six months or less that they loaned us the money. That's very respectable. These are, but that's how it works, right? Really good people respond to good managers. And, and, you know, a lot of it is just about being human. Let's shift gears a little bit into the cannabis industry and spend like five minutes on that, if you don't mind. Sure. But yep. what, what first got you involved in that? And how did that become like something that you teach in school? Sure. It was actually really deliberate. So in 2015, Mm -hmm. um, I was at a bit of an inflection point in with my non-teaching time. I had come to the end of a big project. Okay. And so I'm sitting here wondering, what am I going to do? And I looked at three different areas uh, that I felt were hot at the time. So one was blockchain, which I thought, yeah, it's going to be big, but I don't bring anything to the party. And I, frankly, I actually find it super boring, personally. <laughs> Two, <laughs> drones, which I just find really cool because I love technology and and i thought drones are going to be a big part of our life over the yeah, next little yeah. while and uh the third one was cannabis because trudeau had basically you know hinted that if i get elected in the fall i'm gonna legalize this stuff so so i picked cannabis <laughs> and uh and I, I i applied one of my theories which is that anybody can be an expert in anything if you give them three months <laughs> and that's what i did I did a deep, deep dive. I spent every waking second reading, watching, attending, meeting. And, and what happens after three or four months, you actually start to build a network. Mm -hmm. Actually know who you are. And, and then eight months later, CBC calls and they actually want your opinion about something. And it just <laughs> it kind of, you know, it just sort of builds on itself, you know? So the media work built on, um, built on the consulting and that sort of stuff. And then as legalization was coming along, I just thought it would be a fun project and, um, you know, to start, to start a cannabis education initiative here at Ryerson. And so I started with the business of cannabis, which is the course that I teach. Mm -hmm. And we, we um, ultimately the next year, by the next year, we had expanded it to three courses. So one is the science of cannabis and another one is a deep dive on the law side. Right. Yeah. So ah, very interesting. Together, yeah. Put those together and you have the course series. Okay. And where do you think that's going and what, why has there been like kind of like that drop off in the excitement of it? And you've seen a couple cannabis startups in Toronto go out of business, especially during COVID and stuff like that. And where do you think the future of it's going? What's been the, the real problem with the rollout that has happened? It's an exact parallel to what I saw in the late 90s with fiber and other forms of wireless communications that was being overbuilt to the nth degree. The, mm -hmm. only, <laughs> the only argument I ever had with the president of Telesat was when I argued with him about basically all this capacity that was being laid down. I said, this is stupid. Like, this is never going to get filled up. Huh. And I was right. And three years ago, in the cannabis business, while while the irrational exuberance was carrying on, the stocks were still going up. Um, I did a quick calculation. It was not hard to do, and this is when I turned um, bearish on on weed. I knew that the consumption in Canada is about nine hundred thousand kilograms, and I added up Canopy and Aurora's planned production capability, and, and what it was, was over it? A million. Over a million. <laughs> 
approach. I'm like, oh, okay. What are the other 200 companies going to do, right? We right. have a massive capacity overbuild happening here. I already had a parallel from my past life. So I'm, you know, I think one of my strengths is actually recognizing patterns. So I just, you know, I realized long before the markets did that we're going to have a massive problem. Then last year, that started to come to like really come into fruition, you know, in early 19, along with another problem, which is that there's massive inventories in the system still. Mm. So when people really dig and look at the numbers, you see that it's going to take a lot more growth in this market for these stocks to become worth what they once were. Yeah, I see that. Okay. Uh, thanks for sharing that. And uh, now you're interested in cannabis. Have you, you still teach that course at Ryerson, those courses? or we didn't offer it this semester because of COVID. Yeah. So, and demand was down a little bit. So we decided not to. Now it's being offered in the winter and we'll see what the demand is like. So what's the, what's the next thing for you, Brad? What's the next uh, space that you're looking into right now? Or I'm something that interests you maybe for the next five to 10 years? So based on the stuff I've done in cannabis over the past five years, I've been for the last year or two, I've been really watching the psychedelic drug space, hmm. starting to get a lot of attention. It is. There's now some publicly traded companies as of the spring um, and, and more coming along all the time. So it's going to get a fair bit of attention. Now I can almost guarantee you it will, the hype will overdrive, will, will overtake the actual opportunity. <laughs> it, it seems to be happening already. I, I actually put something on LinkedIn about oh, around a month ago, and it was that I realized, holy smokes, next Wednesday, I'm literally scheduled to be attending three different psychedelic conferences on one day. Really? Like, Is that yeah. in Canada? Is that, uh... One was Benzinga, so that's like international, but the other two were Canadian. Yeah. Huh. Huh. And, Interesting. And, uh, and I'm thinking, well, this thing may be jumping the shark early, so... <laughs> Okay, fair. Look, I think it's a great industry. There's going to be a lot of great things happen. Uh, I'm just worried that the hype will will be too much. You know, will will like I say be be not not in keeping with what the actual opportunity is. Okay, so we'll wrap up here, and I'll ask you just a couple more questions before we ask the last question. Uh, where can people find you online? Where can people find you? Uh, sure. Um, so I have a Twitter, Brad Poulos, B R A D P O U L O S. Uh, I don't tweet a lot. My website is the same, .com, bradpoulos.com. Those are probably the two best places. I'm on LinkedIn too. And, you know, most people I'll, 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 I'll connect with them if they want. Perfect. Thanks. And, uh, okay, last question. I asked this question to everybody uh, as a last question on the podcast. And it's a kind of a derivative of, I read a book called Zero to One by Peter Thiel. I'm not sure if you've read that one. Yeah. It's kind of like his um, uh, entrepreneur's question, which is, um, about what's something that you believe that other people uh, don't find true. And I've been asking this to people because everyone that I have has a different kind of POV on the world. They've, they've had their own experience and story and they, are, have ex, they have expertise in a certain area that most people don't know. And the first question came up when I was like, I turned on this phone and it just worked. And I have no idea how this phone works, right? Or I turn on the lights and I have no clue how electrical works in my condo. So I like to ask people, what's something that you know that you wish other people knew? Okay, this might not be super profound, but I think it's something that I've learned over the years that other people don't realize as much as they should. And that is that everything that's fun and interesting happens at the margin. So it's interesting. the next thing that matters. It doesn't matter what's already happened. I can average up what's already happened but that's, that's, it doesn't matter what happened. What matters is the next thing that's going to happen and the, the marginal value that will bring to me or the marginal, it depends on what it is that we're talking about. Right. But the interesting place is at the margin. I like that. I like that. Yeah. Thank you. We've gone 15 minutes over. So I appreciate you being able sure. to extend this far. You're a gentleman and a scholar, Brad. You didn't, you didn't ask me about books. But you know what? Why not at the end here, one or two books that you believe an entrepreneur should read? Absolutely. So the one is a book that you've already read called Zero to One. I think it's a really, really important book, especially if you do, you're doing something that's a little bit new or different. So if you're just starting a, 
you know, like a copycat business. There's just something, there's nothing um, wrong with starting a convenience store in a place that doesn't have a convenience store. That's highly mm -hmm. entrepreneurial too, but you don't need zero to one for that, right? Um, so, but if you're doing something that's kind of new, if you're blazing a trail, it's a great book. Uh, the second book I would recommend to virtually every business person, but absolutely every entrepreneur is called The Hard Things About Hard Things by Ben Horowitz. Ben Horowitz is an ex-CEO. He's a VC now, and his partner in, in both his previous startup world and as a venture capitalist is Mark Andreessen, the inventor of the web browser. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So okay. he talks about growing companies and all the tough stuff that you have to do as you do it. And man, I've, I've listened to the book three times. The last time I did was when I actually took on a part-time COO job. Okay. And I needed to refresher. So I listened to the book again because that I, will be the next book I read. Thank you for that recommendation. And the just added it to our wish list there in Audible. Thank you, Mark. Uh, Mark and I share an Audible with okay. the team. And that is that zero one. I remember a part of the book where they talk about like the magic happens on the fringe. And that was kind of a little bit what, what you're talking about with the margin there. And that's right. where the interesting thing happens. Exactly. Right. And I think about that very often because that is the exciting part, right? Like what's happening on the fridge of fringe of any industry. That's where the magic happens. You got it. Yeah, okay. Brad. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. You are amazing gentlemen and a scholar. Appreciate you. Um, I'll do an outro right here. This is what they did not teach you in school with Brad Poulos. Thank you for being on the show until next time. for tuning in to this week's episode hope you enjoyed it be sure to follow us on instagram at the wise investor until next time this is what they did not teach you in school we hope to see you soon